Good morning and welcome to Legal Defense with Kirk and John. You've got Kirk this morning. Hope that's okay with y'all. Well, um, big news earlier this week, uh, Milwaukee County Circuit Court Judge Brett Blom was arrested on allegations of uh, possession and I believe distribution of child pornography, which is something that's kind of rocked the legal community because um, um, Judge Blom was um, considered a very liberal candidate. Uh, he's openly gay and uh, was, you know, supported by a lot of people that were progressive and hoped for there to be a, uh, you know, more of a progressive view in the courts and had a lot of support from Democrats and so forth. So what we know so far is that going back to fall of last year, Judge Blom allegedly uh, was uh, sending pictures, videos and, and pictures on the app called Kik, K-I-K, and um, someone reported him as distributing inappropriate material. And then there was an investigation that occurred and subpoenas were issued to um, the providers of that app and uh, law enforcement did obtain the videos that are in question. And based on the criminal complaint that's been issued, they do clearly uh, seem to indicate that this would qualify as child pornography. Now, what I want to talk about is, in this particular case, a problem that exists um, in terms of those types of cases that have or draw a great deal of public attention because people are shocked by allegations and glean information primarily from what's called the criminal complaint. And if you're somewhat familiar with this process, um, you, you may be thinking, gosh, Kirk, I already know that stuff. But a lot of listeners tune into this show because um, they don't have a lot of familiarity with the criminal justice system and rely on Kirk and uh, John to explain kind of how these things work. Um, so a, a, a case, whether it be a misdemeanor or felony in Wisconsin is typically initiated by the process of filing a criminal complaint. And that comes from the DA's office. And the manner in which that criminal complaint is drafted is um, kind of an interesting concept. Now, this particular one was issued by the Department of Justice because there was nobody in the Milwaukee County DA's office that could have acted on this case without there being a direct conflict. So there had been, there is a Department of Justice person assigned to this case to handle it. But essentially what happens is uh, police reports or investigative reports are forwarded to the prosecutor. The prosecutor then uh, sort of summarizes those things and decides the appropriate charges. And a lot of people have a misunderstanding about how these cases are initiated. It's not the police or the investigator that decide what the charges are. They make a referral to the prosecutor and then Rightfully so, the prosecutor will then uh, examine the law and see, based on the elements of what the evidence may be able to prove, selects the appropriate charges. Um, that's not something that the police do. 
So then um, a criminal complaint that is supposed to accomplish uh, the who, what, where, and how of an allegation, enough to put a person on notice so that they know what they're defending against generally, okay? A criminal complaint, however, isn't evidence, and it's not even deemed to be reliable, accurate, or even true. Um, There is, of course, a standard whereby it can be challenged if what is alleged doesn't even constitute a crime. Okay, that's one way that that can happen. But um, generally speaking, uh, it could say anything, and if those things, if they were true, would, uh, if it would constitute a crime, then it's based uh, deemed to be legally sufficient. Well, in a felony case, the next step would be to schedule an initial appearance, establish bond, and then schedule a preliminary hearing. A preliminary hearing is designed to uh, give a judge or magistrate or court commissioner uh, an initial opportunity to examine the evidence because this is the first step in the process where somebody who is not affiliated directly with the prosecution will have a an opportunity to look at the evidence, and then the prosecution has to call witnesses, usually a witness. And many counties have sort of um, gotten into this mode where they will call a summary witness or or what they call a reader, (laughs) someone who reads the criminal complaint at the preliminary hearing. And um, so, as you can imagine, oftentimes, most times, almost all the time, Uh, Cases are then bound over for the next step, and that's when discovery becomes available to the defense. But I want to talk about um, a problem that is really highlighted in this case that I foresee will be an issue. And that is that since a criminal complaint is not evidence, and since a criminal complaint can really contain just about anything, um, and it is open to the public, I mean, I, I saw what the charges are and the descriptions of the videos involved, by looking at the publicly accessible document, the criminal complaint. Now, mind you, there's a presumption of innocence here, and there's nothing's been proven. This is just language that the prosecutor is stating, okay, and may or may not be true, um, may or may not be reliable. There could be all kinds of problems, could be all kinds of defenses, who knows. But it's out there um, for public consumption. And the idea behind this is that Yes, everything that happens in court or as part of that court process should be open to the public so that there aren't, you know, secrets kept from the world. It's part of our open government idea and a fair and public trial, right? But uh, here, everyone who has any interest in this case, which is a lot of people, are, are reading the criminal complaint. And there are graphic very graphic descriptions of these videos. I mean, enough to make you cringe, uh, where you'd say, if you read it. And, you know, this is something that comes up occasionally. When you have a criminal complaint that gets into such sordid detail, again, remembering that this isn't evidence and, and is yet to be proven, and it starts swaying public opinion right from the get-go. And a lot of the public reaction to this case has been, yuck, what's going on here? Shock, dismay, um, and disgust, to to be honest. And it's, it's an issue that, you know, there is a way that one can seek to 
uh, excise or have certain portions of the criminal complaint um, shielded from public view if there is an, an argument to be made that there is excessive detail that's in there, given that the purpose of the charging document is simply to alert the defendant, not the general public, but the defendant of what he or she is going to be defending against generally. So it occurs to me that there are definitely times when that could be alleged in such a way that it says there was a video that in the opinion of the person who examined it would constitute child pornography without talking about every single thing that is viewed in said video. See what I'm saying? And that would still accomplish the purpose of allowing a defendant to know what they're defending against, generally. So, you know, in this case, it it really looks like all that detail was put in there with the distinct purpose of shocking the public, um, making sure that people know how, you know, quote-unquote gross this really is. And... Um, you know, I've had cases where, you know, a criminal complaint it goes far beyond serving that basic purpose. And then it ends up outlining, uh, you know, page upon page upon page of details of things. And it's there is prejudice. There is prejudice here. And I'm, I'm wondering what will happen with with regard to the judge's attorneys, because there is action that can be taken. However, you know, it's already out there. You can't unring a bell. It's probably already too late in that regard. But it's just another function of our system that, um, you know, when there's an opportunity to, to make somebody else look bad or have the public prejudge somebody by releasing all of this info, you know, it's one of those strategic things that I think uh, prosecutors sometimes just can't resist um, the opportunity to... Uh, pound their chests and say this is now don't get me wrong if this all turns out to be true it's a bad thing for sure but um just at this phase where practically nothing except the arrest has occurred so far um it's far too early for anyone to judge what's going on based upon a document that was drafted by a prosecutor all right we'll be back right after these messages welcome back uh there's been a push Another push to uh, re-examine our rules that relate to expungement of criminal records. And this has become something important as we continue to become much more um, electronically connected to uh, each other in society. And the ways in which public records can be easily accessed and utilized. Now, you'll note, if you ever go on the Wisconsin Circuit Court Access website, which our state is very good at having a database that where you can check not only the status of a pending case, uh, what the charges are, what's happening next in the case, but also kind of the history of the case. And that, that goes back to uh, when they started uh, having things stored electronically, which is has been you know a couple of decades now. Another thing they're doing to try and catch up to the modern era is that old files that are, uh, they're kind of peeling back the layers of the onion, so to speak, going back to cases that are older and slowly adding those to this system. 
And uh, they're at a point now where you can go back at least to, I would say, the you know mid-80s, depending on the county, and depending upon whether records were retained, because there have been different rules over the years as to how long those records are retained, uh, to, to make a preservation of those records. So uh, over the years, as we have uh, evolved into a more electronically-based system of keeping track of these things, um, you know, we've slowly been adding older cases and you might now be able to find out that your next door neighbor was, you know, convicted of a serious crime back in the, the 1980s. And you might say, Ooh, that's a bank robber. Oh my gosh. You know, whereas before you wouldn't know that. Um, <clears throat> just, just a little comment on what the whole philosophy is about this, the fact that the public has access to these things. This is how... The open records law in Wisconsin works, which is our own version of what you might otherwise know of as the Freedom of Information Act. That's the federal version. And there's an obligation on the part of the government to uh, allow the public to access records in such a way that um, they can be just as easily accessed as those who work within the government if the government itself uses some kind of database or cataloging system. Uh, it's required under the open records law that the public be allowed to do the same. Now, it's not required that any government agency do extra work to make it so things are more accessible to the public. But essentially what happened here in Wisconsin, and it's probably a good thing, is that they created this um, circuit court access program, website, if you will, in order to make it easy for uh, clerks of courts and other, you know, agencies within the criminal justice system and civil system, of course, to have ready access to these types of documents since they are very, very frequently the subject of an open records request. So rather than having somebody submit a request to the clerk's office, then having to process that request and dedicating, you know, countless personnel to uh, evaluate each and every one of those requests, they have simply made it available to anyone who wants to see it, because it clearly falls within uh, that open records law. So as a result, um, really, just to try and reduce the amount of work that would be involved, and also to encourage, as we say all the time, the open and public aspect of what happens in court. Uh, it's a handy program if, well, I use it probably 10 or 20 times a day because it has information not only as it relates to my clients, but other cases that I may be investigating, wanting to know, hey, how did a prosecutor, you know, uh, respond to a particular issue in another case? And it's very handy for that sort of thing. But the downside of all of this, which has been the subject of uh, ongoing efforts to kind of balance the fact that in the old days you'd have to you'd have to know exactly what you were asking for and it would be somewhat laborious you could either send a letter to the clerk of court's office and say i would like any and all uh criminal files relating to joe schmo my next door neighbor then there would be a period of time where they would analyze the request they would respond and say, we're in the process of 
uh, honoring your request, but it'll be three weeks. Before we give it to you, we're going to charge you 25 cents a page, and we estimate that it's 89 pages. Then you send the clerk of court's office a check or whatever, and then they process it when they have the resources and availability, and then you get something in the mail, which was probably a stab in the dark to begin with, okay? You wouldn't do that just for everybody you know, right? Okay. Um, secondly, the other aspect of this that has been uh, controversial is the fact that if you go onto this website, you have to click on this thing that says, I agree. And what you're agreeing to is that you're not going to, you're not an employer, you're not uh, someone who's going to use this information to discriminate against somebody because they have a pending charge. Okay. And part of that is because the information that is on CCAP is, uh, although publicly available, much like I was talking about in our, our last little segment here, a lot of the information contained there is completely unproven. You know, on those shows that say, you know, we're reminded that people are innocent until proven guilty, and some of these people may have not had any charges issued against them, but you get to see them acting drunk and like an idiot on the you know body camera of the cop. Uh, yeah, but remember, they're they're innocent until proven guilty. You gotta have that little disclaimer in there. So similarly, there's this disclaimer out there for the Wisconsin Circuit Court Access Program. Now that does very little to protect someone's you know, quote unquote, privacy, because there isn't any privacy. But, you know, to say that you would um, go snooping around and use information about an allegation, or let's say a charge that was issued, but then later dismissed, which could be for a million different reasons. Um, it's true that none of this is information that has necessarily been deemed to be factually true, and that you shouldn't treat it as such. But you see the problem, okay? So, you know, something that may or may not have happened uh, when you're younger or something that got dismissed or something that where there was an agreement to get it dismissed if the person went to counseling, uh, there is this push. And we presently do have several laws on the books that help theoretically protect younger people from an indiscretion at the time they were young. And traditionally, that had been something that, for years, um, applied to somebody who was under 21 initially, and only for misdemeanors, and only if there had never been any such action taken in the past. Well, several years ago, many years ago, that was uh, amended to include people up to the age of 25, still including any type of misdemeanor. And then there was another expansion of that to include people that are under 25 that have class H or I felonies. And those are the two lowest categories of felony that exist under our law. So, you know, expanding the territory. There is a push now to, number one, change the criteria altogether in terms of how expungement is granted. And that's partly because there have been developments both in the statutes and case law that have altered uh, the standard by which one has to cite in order to state that they would be eligible for expungement. In the past, it would have to be asked for at the front end of the process. Then the judge would have to render an opinion beforehand about whether the person would be eligible for expungement. And that's still a practice that's followed. However, 
now, based on some of these developments, as I said, in the case law in particular, um, a person can go back if it wasn't appropriately addressed at the time of sentencing and ask the, the court or whatever court now has jurisdiction, if it's a different judge or whatever, and ask for it to be reevaluated um, if there had not been a decision made in the past. So now what we're talking about is expanding the age for which one would be eligible to ask for this, and that is currently being debated, but also um, a provision that would have retroactive application going back um, to basically reassess uh, a number of old cases with, with more, I would say, forgiving criteria for what what should be applied. And that is going to account for many, many, many cases out there. So uh, I'll keep you updated, but we're expecting very soon that there will be some change with regard to who, maybe, maybe it's you, could go back and uh, clean up your record based on new criteria that is about to uh, change things. So we'll keep you updated on all that. But in the meantime, we've got to take a break. We'll be right back after these messages. All right, I want to switch gears here and talk about something that I do frequently talk about, but just some updated observations on things that are going on as it relates to the posting of bond in cases. And just as a refresher course here, that happens when someone is initially taken into custody and there needs to be a determination of what conditions will be attached to that person they have to agree to if they're going to be released. And oftentimes it requires the posting of cash money. And in my opinion, this is a process that has run completely out of control in our state and in some counties in particular, where there's no standard. It's basically just whatever the prosecutor asks for. And there's been a trend, and mind you, um, the people that set the bond are generally people that have been elected to office. And uh, we add to that another layer of complication, which is uh, Marcy's Law, which all courts have to consider um, protecting or, um, I guess, elevating the rights of an alleged victim, again, before conviction. And the tendency amongst most judges is to take the prosecutor's word for it. And in some counties, it's become sort of a, you know, rubber stamp process where the prosecutor arbitrarily, without knowing anything about the defendant other than they're being charged with something, will make an argument that is permissible but kind of illogical that based merely on what the charge the prosecutor decided, which could be anything, uh, based on whatever flimsy evidence they can, you know, assert in a criminal complaint, uh, state that a person is automatically a flight risk. Now, think about it. That might have been a good argument, like in the 1950s, when someone could flee the jurisdiction and live on a cash basis without... Uh, much risk of being tracked down if they move to Argentina or something. But remember, um, you're talking <laughs> nowadays, what are the odds that you could just 
disappear and never be found and never have to worry about a warrant and uh, completely give up your entire life based on an allegation. That's one thing. I mean, that's a little bit unrealistic. I suppose there are those cases, certainly, where someone would be tempted to do that if the charges are serious enough. I mean, if you're looking at a murder or something like that, and if you know you did it and you're worried about going to prison for the rest of your life, I suppose you might be tempted to give it all up and, you know, go into hiding. But in the modern era, I would suggest that's a very small number of people that would even consider such a thing. And after all, um, the justice system operates on the foundation that allegations need to be proven beyond a reasonable doubt to a jury, which are there to protect us. So those rights that you and I all have are things that are supposed to make us more confident that the legal system will do its job properly. So if you're innocent, I mean, just imagine the scenario. You're completely innocent of what you're alleged to have done. Prosecutor says, I think you did it. And they lay out this argument that if you're convicted, you're facing 900 years in jail or prison. And anyone facing that would just naturally say, oh, that's it. I'm splitting. You'll never see me again. Goodbye. Well, if you're innocent, you wouldn't do that because you want to clear your name and you want to contest these allegations. Okay. So... That number, that number of years that's out there is something that the prosecutor decided to do. Because, as you probably know, um, it's entirely possible and permitted under the legal system for a prosecutor to take one event and charge it 15 different ways. And then for each one of those, you add the maximum permissible penalty up, and you can end up in these situations where someone's facing several hundred years. Well, one problem with that, as I've already alluded to, is that um, the, you know the one who suffers the most in that situation is the innocent person who doesn't have a lot of money. That person will suffer in that situation greatly, and it will be a long time before that person can uh, address the allegations directly. Add to that the fact that up until uh, the beginning of this month, March 2021, Uh, Most courts, and there are still some courts in various counties, that simply are not conducting jury trials. So you could have a very serious allegation against uh, a defendant who is innocent of those charges. And because the courts don't have the capability due to COVID restrictions to have trials, it's entirely possible. And it is happening right now where someone cannot get justice. And they're sitting on a massive, massive amount of bond. There have been cases where someone has no previous criminal history, and a DA will come in and recommend fifty thousand, a hundred thousand, five hundred thousand dollars cash bond because of the way that they have charged the person and they've added up the maximum penalty. So that brings me to my next point, which is um, it's extraordinarily unusual. I mean, less than 1% of the time that when someone's con- gets, that someone gets convicted of all of the charges that are in the criminal complaint and they get the maximum penalty for each one of those charges. So this is one of those hypotheticals that we just know isn't true yet. 
It's an argument the prosecutors are capable of making. Now, why do they do this? Well, let me just throw this out there because there's several reasons. Psychologically speaking, when someone is sitting in jail waiting for their case to be heard, that person is much more likely to make decisions about what to do with their case based on the immediate desire to be um, relieved from the great stress of confinement. In other words, uh, it's very hard to be in a jail cell. And, and when we keep people in jail on cash bond, by the way, they are in local county jails, which were built and designed for the purpose of allowing people to serve their sentences and almost always those sentences are allowed to be served with work release. We call it Huber. So someone could be facing a charge that in all likelihood, uh, if they pled guilty, they could get out on work release at a, at a minimum, okay? They could obtain their freedom by pleading guilty, but they, they can't contest the charges because they'll have to wait for a very long time. And this bizarre hypothetical, which we know simply is never true, hardly ever true, that a person is facing 400 years or whatever in prison because they're not. They are, they are technically. So when a prosecutor comes in and, and you know, th this is another problem with this whole process is that these decisions are made with roughly, you know, five minutes worth of investigation by a defense lawyer. All this happens very quickly. Now, the public defender's office are, you know, the very hardworking people that work for the state uh, tend to have an opportunity to shake hands, say, hello, I'm, I'm the public defender representing you here, and I, tell me a little bit more about yourself. How long have you lived here? Do you have a job? Uh, a quick look at the criminal record. What kind of assets do you have? You know, a very, very, very cursory look at what the person's, uh, you know, earning potential is, what, what sort of financial solvency the person has, and then that extremely brief encounter is then presented to the judge or court commissioner. And the prosecutor's goal here, and I'm sorry to sound pessimistic here, but I think it's true, is to ask for an amount that the defendant cannot post. And that's a shot in the dark, okay? Now, let's talk, let's talk about how this should work. And this is under the Constitution, that we, uh, the, the Wisconsin Constitution, which contains a specific provision that says cash bail is not favored. It should be the exception to the rule. I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, but the spirit behind it is that it should be the unusual circumstance where someone is required to post cash in order to be released. Why is that important? Because we have to acknowledge and remember that when it's just one person, the prosecutor, that has the ability to say Mr. Defendant is facing all these years in prison, it, that's the only person who's making that determination. No one, no one gets to say, oh, prosecutor, you've overcharged this case, because they always do. And then say, well, you're just not being reasonable. That's not part of the process. In fact, that judge or court commissioner at that initial phase is supposed to give tremendous deference to whatever the prosecutor says. But at the same time, they're supposed to juggle that 
compare that against our, you know, our constitutional provision that says cash bond should be disfavored or not, or not something that should be considered. We'll keep talking about this when we come back, so stay tuned. So before the break, we were talking about bond problems and how we've seen this creeping... <laughs> there was a movie called The Creeping Terror back in the 60s. I don't know if you ever saw that one, but yeah, it was kind of one of those low-budget B-movies. Um, but this is like that. It's The Creeping Terror. Um, slowly, over the years, uh, there's just been this trend towards increasing cash bonds. And as I said before the break, the the way it's supposed to work is that only in the most unusual circumstances should there be a requirement for cash to be posted. Now, you may not know this, but going back years and years ago, we did have, uh, you know, bail bondsmen in our state. And it was, I think, in the early 1970s that they were abolished. And the reason for that is that it is a predatory business, to say the least. You know, when you see the shows like, uh, you know, Dog the Bounty Hunter, you know, those are in states where a bondsman, which is a business that will post post the cash on behalf of the defendant, can charge a percentage of that and also agrees to produce the person in court with uh, quasi-law enforcement powers. So... I think you can see how that is a business that can be prone to corruption. And our state, decades ago, acknowledged the fact that that is something bad for society. It's also something that made cash bonds very, very high. So a, a judge would say, I'm ordering $10,000 cash, knowing that uh, they could post only 10% of that. Well, that's not the rule anymore. It hasn't been as I said, since the early 1970s, and now when a judge says you have to post $100,000, it is actually $100,000 that you have to post. Now, true, you get it back no matter what happens, unless there's a restitution order or something else, and as long as the person follows all the conditions that they're supposed to. But look, People that are placed on any kind of bond where it's considered any kind of serious offense, and even in cases where it's not really that serious, we are utilizing a lot of, you know, electronic technology, including uh, electronic monitoring, GPS monitoring, uh, daily check-ins with the sheriff's department. We have ways of making sure that people are sober. While they're out on bond, a lot of tools, a lot of technology, a lot of things that, you know, in our society, people have come up with in order to make it so cash isn't king, you know, in the situation. And if you just think about the basic inequity behind that, why should it be that someone who doesn't even know you, has never met you, gives you five minutes to figure out your argument as to what type of cash you can come up with. And whatever that number is, the prosecutor will want more so that you stay in custody. I think that's really the purpose behind it. Then you have an elected official who has to agree or disagree with the prosecutor. And don't get me wrong, there are plenty of times that that uh, elected official will disagree with the prosecutor, but... 
that le- that leads to another problem. I mean, if a prosecutor perceives that a judge is likely to not go along with what they ask for, they just ask for more. You know the old saying, uh, "Aim high, hit low." And so, if they they really want a hundred thousand cash, they'll ask for five hundred thousand, knowing that the judge will say, "Well, that's too much. I'm going to make it a hundred thousand." That kind of thing. Um, and, and again, it's a tremendous advantage to the prosecution to put a defendant in a situation where they are either desperate to get out, desperate to resolve the case, or you know, unfortunately, desperate to be a rat or a snitch on somebody. And and I mean that in the the kindest way. <laughs> I mean, I know it happens, but there's also problems with that kind of process and the fact that it gets, you know, either implicitly or explicitly encouraged by prosecutors is an ongoing problem in our system. So, and what I mean by that is the fact that it's inherently unreliable. Someone is being asked to say something about somebody else in order to buy their freedom. And that's when someone's in a desperate situation, a lot of people will say just about anything. If they're being told that if you do so, you're going to, you're going to be in a better position. Um, so, uh, we, I'm with, uh, of course, as you probably know, um, I'm a past president of the Wisconsin Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers. I've been working with that association as well as other committees um, throughout the state dealing with trying to provide some predictability and uniformity to this process, homogeny, if you will. There are counties that will impose no, you know, a very simple signature bond and the same alleged crime in a, in a neighboring county could require somebody to post a massive amount that they simply don't have. One might argue that uh, the controlling authorities in that jurisdiction are entitled to measure their own needs with regard to how they set those conditions, and I suppose that's, that's an okay argument, but there's a huge disparity in how this is being applied across the state and the 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 saddest part about all of this is that um, we see far too many people that are under very onerous conditions where their liberty is being you know not only just restrained but outright deprived when they've been convicted of nothing i have clients all the time that say gee kirk it feels like I'm being treated like I'm guilty until I'm proven innocent. Not only because of this bond situation, but also because our system is being largely driven by a lot of players in the process that contribute to the overall perception that you can't win. I mean, that is what we are supposed to be striving at all costs, at any cost, to make sure doesn't happen is that an innocent person ends up being convicted of something they didn't do. This is a formula to make it so someone is in their most vulnerable state, not able to make a a decision that impacts the long term. And frankly, what I'm sick and tired of is this attitude that if it meets the legal definition of the law based on what someone alleges, based on what someone said, based upon even the flimsiest of evidence, 
the prosecution will go after that person like a shark after chum every time because there's this attitude that if they can do it, they will. And again, I hate to get on my high horse here, but I've seen it time and time again. You have someone who needs to be defended. They need to be protected. They've done nothing wrong. But because of the way that the prosecutor is portraying all of this, um, they want the person to stay in custody. They want the person to basically suffer so that they're in a different state of mind when it comes time to resolving their case. Where It's efforts to bypass the, the things that we say are in place to protect the, our, our citizens, protect all of us. The fact that you, if you believe in the system at all, you have to have faith that it's fair. And I've seen it countless times where because of this bizarre and arbitrary process, someone is just deemed a bad person, a criminal, right off the bat at the beginning before there's any opportunity to respond, any opportunity to litigate, any opportunity to put the prosecution to their actual burden of proof because none of that applies in these, you know, preliminary or, you know, essentially beginning hearings that are part of the beginning of the process. That's the worst feeling in the world where you know that one day you were at your job with your with your family and your kids now all of a sudden you're wearing an, uh, a red jumpsuit and you're in jail and somebody you've never met before comes in and starts talking about what a bad person you are and wants to have you locked up uh, for an indefinite period of time until the wheels of justice can eventually catch up going through that experience and then saying to yourself oh well that seemed very unfair but i'm sure the rest is going to be really really fair to me well that doesn't happen you know it, it shatters one's faith in the system and this is why prosecutors are doing an incredible injustice to our community because they go for the throat in these kinds of cases without act, any ability or desire to truly evaluate the character or, or, or actual flight risk of the person. Assuming that anybody who gets arrested for a fairly serious charge is just automatically prone to flee is an abuse of that power. Well, it's time to go. So if you uh, want to tune in next week, you certainly can, as you can every week, right here on 1330 and 101.5. WHBL, this has been Legal Defense with Kirk and John. Have a great weekend.